While the congregation in the sanctuary is watching a video, we wanted to take a moment to tell you about Lent Small Groups 2013. We hope you will accept this invitation to join a small group this year if you're not already in one. We believe that taking an active part in a small group is one of the most powerful ways to grow in your walk with Christ. Small group members study the Bible together, encourage, pray for, and walk alongside each other. This year's Lent sermon series is Servant King. About the life of David in First and Second Samuel, the Lent sermon series study is six weeks with a celebration dinner together at the end. Try out a small group for six weeks, or stay for longer. To learn more about Lent small groups or to sign up for a group, you can go to upc.org/smallgroups or call Sarah at two zero six five two four seven three zero one extension two zero five. We hope you have a blessed Sunday. I don't think we had even finished unpacking from the honeymoon before my wife and I were at each other,、uh, and I don't remember what we were arguing about, but I, I'll never forget what my wife said to me. She said, "I am jealous of your plants." Now I know we said meaner things to one another than that, but I just it caught me short. I thought, "What does she mean by that? I'm jealous of your plants." She said, "You know, I watch you with your plants." You, you you water them, you fertilize them, you rotate them.、Uh, when the sunshine, the morning moves across the carpet, you know if you happen to be passing by, you take the plants and you move them into that spot of light wherever it's going across the room. She's jealous of my plants, and I'm looking at my plants, and you know at that time it's like avocado seeds and toothpicks and peanut butter jars and clippings, and what what is she trying to tell me? What she's trying to say is, George, you live with me. But you cultivate your plants. You're you're a farmer with your plants, and you're just with me, me. And so, what she was doing is she was calling me really to be a steward of our relationship. You know, a steward is someone. Take for example an environmental steward. An environmental steward is a person who knows that the that the landscape they're in does not exist for their own consumption. They're actually Living their lives in the context of a broader landscape, a greater story, and it's their delight and pleasure to see it that way. And so they look around them, and they and they and they fertilize, and they nurture, and they cultivate, and they protect, and they do whatever they can do so that things around them flourish. And Anne, my wife, is saying, "Why don't you do that with me?" It's a great question at the beginning of a marriage. By the way, Anne is in Florida. I, I、uh, don't dare、uh, preach on the subject of marriage when she's anywhere near the state.、Uh, so, as far as you know, I'm an expert on marriage、uh, today. There's no fact-checking this sermon.、Uh, but I do want to talk to you about marriage this morning because, as we close this、uh, series on the Book of Proverbs, you know, marriage is a topic that comes up a lot. It's important to a young person who's thinking about their future. Many people want to be married, but I, I also am aware of in our context. Even the word marriage is painful、uh, for us、uh, because you know we've been hurt in marriage, or we've wanted to be married, married and we couldn't be married.、Uh, you know, this is Chinese New Year, as Ray told us, and there's a lot of social pressure if you're Chinese in China、uh, to get married. I, th- I think it was in Taiwan. I saw this.、Um, 
news bit this week that you can actually rent a boyfriend and bring a boyfriend home for Chinese New Year so that the family will stop asking you, are you ever going to meet a guy? You know, and you just, you just need him for the meal and then, then he's gone. But those questions of, are you going to get married are so awkward. And the good news of the gospel is, uh, Jesus Christ is our primary union. God has made covenant with us and bound us to him. He, God is our faithful, uh, partner. And so the Apostle Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish everybody would be just like me and, and single. That's interesting in a city like Seattle where 55% of our adults are single. So marriage is important, and I'm, I'm glad we're talking about it, but I also realize it's, it's, it's not where many of us are living. We're kind of done with marriage or not sure we want to go there. For you, I want to encourage you to think about your primary relationships. Marriage is really nothing if it's not a primary relationship, and oftentimes it's a hard relationship, and that's true of all of our primary relationships. Many of us have uh, relationships with aging parents or adult siblings or business partners. Maybe somebody in your small group or a neighbor or a roommate is really right now your primary relationship. I don't want you to be, pretend that you're married to them, but I do want you to hear what this word of, of, of God has to say to you because at the bottom of it all, it's really about love. And the text that we'll be reading in a moment and reflecting on is a text that's about the stewardship of the heart and the cultivation of love. Before we read this text together, I just want to add uh, my uh, affirmation to the encouragement that uh, Ray, Pastor Ray gave us earlier to be involved with a small group. And I want to say to you this. Harvard professor Robert Putnam in his book, Bowling Alone, shows that the evidence... Uh, has, has, has demonstrated that there's one thing you can do to give yourself an extra year of life from where you sit right now. Do you know this? He said, if you are not currently in a, in a group, a small group, he doesn't mean Bible study necessarily, but in a small group, and, and you get in one, then you reduce the probability of you dying in the next year by 50%. Now, that's not bad, huh? So, come on, those of you who are, I know some of us are holding out on this whole thing, and I just beg you, for six weeks, give this a try. You know, the, the abundant life to which Jesus calls us is not something we experience in an auditorium. The church is not a building. It's about living our lives in a covenanted community. A covenant community of people who know each other well enough to commit to one another and to live in the presence of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're trying to do, even if it's only for six weeks. So I want to encourage you to join a small group. And if you're in a small group, you might also think about this. Uh, the stewardship of the heart and the cultivation of love and what will it look like in your group. Let's find out. And open up Proverbs 7, if you would, with me. Uh, I'm going to be talking with you about the whole chapter 7, so I'd invite you to leave the Bible open in your lap as we do. But our text for reading together is Proverbs chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, which you'll find on page 514 of the Pew Bible. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's Word aloud together. Proverbs chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. My child, keep my words and store up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, that they may keep you from the loose woman, 
from the adulteress with her smooth words. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. It's interesting to me that the Hebrew word for proverb is translated into Greek uh, by, the, by the word that we translate in English, parable. Jesus comes teaching in parables. That's not new. The ancient sage had taught in parables or proverbs. And it seems to me that chapter 7 is a, a, a parable very much like the kinds of parables that Jesus himself used. It's a, a long story. But it, I want to suggest to you this morning that it's a parable of the heart. Four times the word heart is repeated in this story. It's about, therefore, the cultivation of a healthy heart. Let me just show you where the heart shows up in this passage. If you look at verse 25, you'll see here is the, um, the moral of the story. After the story, the father looks to his children and he says, Now, let me just tell you what I just told you. Do not let your hearts turn aside. Uh, so that just, I just want you to catch that this is really about the orientation of the heart. Don't let it turn. Don't let the heart turn. And what he's just given them, actually, is a story of two people having a relationship in the street. And he's described them as two hearts, both of which are turned. Disoriented hearts. Let me show you those. Uh, look at verse 7. Verse 6, you'll see the father here is, this is not actually happening. He's just telling the story. But he tells a story about, okay, I'm looking out of the window of my house. He's looking at a street down below. And he sees a crowd of young men. And out of them stands one man. This is his first character. Uh, a young man, in verse 7, without sense. is what our translation says. But literally, it's lacking of heart. The young man in the street, he's lacking of heart. See, what he's saying is, there's something missing. His heart is hollow. That phrase uh, comes up several times in the book of Proverbs, and oftentimes what's implied is lacking, is wisdom, and that's uh, no doubt what he's missing here as well. He's, so without sense is a good translation. But what I want you to catch is if you're reading in the Hebrew, you're noticing, huh, here's a young man who's got a hollow heart. Something's missing. Then he introduces the second character of the story, and there are only two characters. This one is a woman, and in verse 10, it says, Then a woman comes toward him. The man is walking on the street down below, and then a woman comes toward him, uh, dressed like a prostitute. But here's the important thing, wily of heart. There it is. Another way to translate that more literally would be guarded of heart. She has her heart protected. Okay, so the first man, he's got a hollow heart, and, and this woman has a protected heart. These two are negative examples. They're, they're not to be followed. They're examples of hearts that are turned aside or disoriented. And the pain in the story that the father tells is really about, a, it's, it's about seduction and adultery that leads to death. The pain in that story really results from this disorienting of the heart. And, I, you know, I, and I, I know in our congregation, many of us have really um, experienced seduction and adultery, and the pain of that is devastating. But I want to suggest to you what's even more common than that is hearts that just turn away from one another, just very gradually by degrees over time, and you don't even notice it until one day you realize our affection for one another seems to have evaporated. 
And there's a marriage, but there's not a love. Okay, so, that, so what I want you to see is the diagnostics that the ancient sage offers us around these two hearts. Let's look at these two disorientations. First, the, disorient, the uh, disorientation number one is the hollow heart. And I want to um, uh, suggest that a hollow heart feeds selfishness in the relationship. When our hearts are hollow, uh, they need to be filled. And uh, when we look not to God to fulfill that place within us that only God can fulfill, but we try to extract that filling from our spouse, then we put our spouse in a very dangerous and unfair place. We make them a God, lowercase g. We're trying to get from them a basic need that only God can really fulfill. And it leads to selfishness. Then the relationship becomes all about me, my needs, and my satisfaction, and what you're not giving me. We kind of see this unfold in this text a little bit. If you look at verse 15, it's interesting. Notice in Hebrew, always, whenever there's a repetition, the narrator's telling you something. This father repeats in verse 15. He's, he's giving us the words of this woman. So now I've come out to meet you. She's speaking to the hollow-hearted man. I've come out to meet you, to seek you. Notice how many times you is, is being repeated. Came out to meet you, to seek you, and I found you. See, he's vulnerable to her seduction because... Of the hollowness in his heart, she's appealing. She's saying, I, I, I could make this night in which we come to drink our love until morning all about you. That's the pitch. And he's, he's susceptible to it because he needs something there in his heart. I'm, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know when I say a hollow heart feeds selfishness. But I want you to think about the antidote to that because it's so important in our relationships. And the antidote is serving. Uh, a healthy heart cultivates love by serving. Serving that other person, the primary relationship with your spouse. Otherwise, it becomes about me. Philippians 2, 4 says, Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. What are the interests of your spouse? Who is your spouse? What do they need from you in order to become whom God has designed them to be? Well, think about it. Today, what do you have that your spouse needs in order to become the person that God wants him or her to become? See, you're meant to be changed in this relationship. There was a CEO driving with his wife one day and pulled into it's a Fortune 500 CEO, big, big, you know, big job. And he and his wife pulled into a service station fill up the car. He goes into the shop to pay the cashier and he comes out and he sees his wife. She's talking with this gas station attendant and it's like pretty serious. Surprising. Cause, but then they get in the car and they drive off and he goes to her, what was that? And she says, well, you are not going to believe this, but years ago I dated that guy for two years. And he goes, really? She says, yeah. And uh, he puts his hand on her knee as they go on. She says, honey, I think I know what you were thinking. Uh, what is that, dear? I think you're thinking that if you had married that guy, you'd be married to a gas station attendant. And she smiles at him and she says, well, actually, no. What I was thinking was that if I had married that guy, he would be a Fortune 500 CEO. (laughs) And that is the truth, I can tell you as a husband. um, Behind every great man is a surprise mother-in-law, as I used to say. Uh, My wife is with my mother-in-law in Florida right now. I hope they're not listening. But you're meant to change in that relationship. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. 
He gives a theological understanding of falling in love. He says, when you fall in love, you may not be a theological person, but you know, here's what's really happening. He, he says, uh, you look at that other person and you say, wow, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be this. See, that's what you're feeling when you fall in love with someone, that, that fire in your heart. Marriage will change you. But be very sure you hear this. You don't change the person. That's God's job. Your job is to serve the person. How often I get this backwards in my relationship when I, I think my role is to change my wife. And, and it comes out as criticism or manipulation or control or all of these things. That's not really serving her. That's about me. That's my selfishness. That's me trying to fill the hollow place in my life and extract from her what I want her to give me. God says, no, you serve your spouse. So the disorientation, number one, is a hollow heart which feeds selfishness. But a healthy heart cultivates love by serving. Let's look at the other heart, the woman's. Disorientation number two. We see here that a guarded heart starves intimacy. We don't know a lot about this woman, but we know more about her than we know about the man. She's married. Her husband, she tells this young man in the street, is away. He's taken a bag of silver. He'd be gone for a month till the new moon. Uh, we also know she's profoundly lonely. She has spent the day by her bed, covering it with fine linens, perfuming it, and looking out of her door at the men who walk by and hoping maybe she could have a night's worth of intimacy with somebody. Sometimes the loneliest people in the room are the people who are married. And I don't exactly know how it happens, but I think it's something like this. Early on, there's a wound in the relationship. It hurts. Just a little thing, maybe. But then a little wall goes up around the heart. I don't want that to happen again. There's some protection. And then out of that isolation, intimacy is harmed just a bit. And so there's another wound, and the wall goes a little bit higher, and then another wound. And pretty soon I find myself walled in and circled and all alone, no longer able to experience intimacy, which is knowing and being known, because I'm entombed in this wall. And so this woman comes out, and she's got a guarded heart. You cultivate love not only by serving your spouse, but by sharing with your spouse. That's the antidote, is sharing. We see that in Philippians 2.2, where the Apostle Paul says, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You've got to come together as who you really are. So the thing about uh, farmers and, and stewards, environmental stewards, they really pay attention. I love to study at the Horticultural uh, Library at UW. Uh, a lot of smart people in there, and I can get free advice on all my planning problems. And uh, they know so much. Because, see, they're stewards of the environment, and they really pay attention. So who is your spouse? Who is this person God has brought into your life? Do you really know who they are? Do you help them know who they are? Do you really know who you are in the context of that relationship and who you're becoming? Well, it's going to require this kind of low-wall, uh, porous fence sharing between the two of you to become of one mind. It's not surprising, therefore, that John Gottman, the professor and expert of relationship at the University of Washington, talks about love maps. He says one of the great predictors of, of stability and health in a relationship is how rich and how detailed each other's love map is of the other. Do you have, a, do you have an image 
of who that person is? Can you describe the territory of their lives, their interests, their dreams? It's the love map. Biblical word for sexual intimacy is knowing. We have to know one another. It requires listening. A couple have been married over 50 years, and husband was sitting on the couch reading the newspaper, folded down the corner and said something to his wife. She was way across the room at the sink, uh, and uh, appeared that she didn't hear him because she didn't turn around. And he said, honey, can you hear me? And she didn't react or answer. So he kind of concerned about that. He stood up and walked halfway across the room, and as he did, he said, honey, can you hear me? She said nothing. He said, oh, my gosh, this is it. Mabel's losing her hearing. He'd been concerned about that. He's feeling really sorry for her. After 50 years, it's kind of this, I guess, this time when her hearing's kind of degrading. And so he walked right up behind her and said right in her ear, honey, can you hear me? And she turned around and said, yes, for the third time. (laughs) Some of us are hard of hearing. And we think it's the other one. but, you know, but, but to cultivate love, we really need, need to practice listening. It's a corporate spiritual discipline. There's no place it's more needed than in our marriages. One of the things my wife and I have noticed as we've had arguments with one another over the years, and yes, that the, uh, the plant argument was just the first in a long tradition of conflict, but we noticed that um, after an argument, there's a new level of intimacy in our relationship that we didn't even know existed. Have you experienced that? It's because something in the desperation of that act of communication where a push come to shove, you didn't really want to have the conversation in the first place, but you did, and you said, this is what I'm feeling, and this is what I'm thinking, and this is what it's like. There's a sharing that happens, and a new understanding, and a fresh intimacy. They don't want it to always happen in the context of conflict. In fact, I don't wish it would never happen in the context. But the, problem, the point is that we're designed for that intimacy, and we need to share in order to get there. I was uh, talking this week with one of our members, a young guy, young in marriage, um, and they have young kids, and they're both working, they run their own business, and their marriage has been really strained. And, and he said to me, but you know, uh, when, when our marriage is teetering on the precipice, what saves it every time is the re- realization that I've been withholding something. This is the husband. I've been withholding the broken parts of me. And there's that moment of real risk, he says, uh, and I have to share the truth about me, but that's what turns it around. Even sharing the brokenness of who we are in that relationship. Now, you can't force your spouse to take that risk. You can't. Maybe they never will. But one thing you can do is you can create a grace environment in which it's safe to do that. Are you the kind of person that makes it virtually impossible for your spouse to share the broken parts of who they are, or are you intentional about creating space in your relationship where it's safe to take the walls down, to call off the guard and say, this is who I think I really am, even when they're not proud of it? Are you listening? Are you sensitive to what they're trying to say to you? Are are you offering affirmation and support, not problem solving? We need to share because a healthy heart cultivates love uh, by sharing. So serving and sharing... Uh, they're hard to do, to get the heart dialed um, straight ahead, um, but for the heart which is at the beginning. And I want to take you back. I've told you there were four. I've talked about three. I want to end with that heart at the beginning, uh, uh, the heart about which you read in verse 3, where this father says, Take my commandments and my teaching. Um, write them on the tablet of your heart. There it is. This is the prophylactic 
This is the advice and the counsel of the sage. This is what he says to his children at the breakfast table in the morning of their lives. I want you to take God's commandment and instruction and write it on the tablet of your heart. Before you relate to your spouse, I want you to relate to your God. And what are the commandments and the instructions? It's the promises of a faithful God who reached into enslave uh, Israel under the oppression of Egypt and said, you belong to me. Let me be your faithful spouse. In Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord says to Israel, I have set my heart upon you. God has set his heart upon you. When you get that into your heart, you're not going to turn astray. You've got resources for health that you wouldn't otherwise have. And it's not just facts that we're to know. After all, notice that uh, the verse goes on. It says, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Here, wisdom is personified as a spiritual being. It points us ahead to Jesus Christ, who's the wisdom of God. To say you are my sister to wisdom is not, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we go, ooh, sister, really? But the word sister was the word that the lover uses in the Song of Solomon. When he says, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. It was a term for real intimacy. When you can say to God, to in, reveal to you in Jesus Christ, you are my intimate friend. Then you have a heart that's ready for relationship. So here's the take on this morning. Grace in the heart cultivates love in the marriage. I want to put that on my fridge. Grace in the heart cultivates love in the marriage. Do you know how much God loves you? You see, Jesus Christ is the one who fills our hearts with his love. He promises to do that. Jesus Christ is the one who takes the guard off our hearts through his forgiveness. It's all about grace. He serves you. God serves you. That's what this table is all about in Jesus. He fills you. Eat and drink, he says. That's for your marriage. I love what the minister said when Prince William and Catherine Middleton got married. He looked at them and said, William and Catherine... You've chosen to be married in the sight of a generous God who so loved the world that he gave himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, of this generous God, husband and wife are to give themselves to each other. Don't try it alone, is what he's saying. In the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, then you go into marriage. He's a gardener, you know, God is. Jesus says, my father's the vine dresser. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. He stands ready to renew your heart today, to renew your marriage today, to renew your friendship today. He can turn it around. He can reorient us. I can be the farmer that Anne was asking me to be. I want to close by reading to you something that you may have heard last week if you watched the Super Bowl. So God made a farmer... It's about the cultivation of, of, of life and family life. And it touched my heart, and I want to read it to you because I want you to think about your marriage or relationship. It's hard work, isn't it? It's hard work. There's nothing easy about it. It's very daily. It's very mundane. But it's suffused with the grace and love of Jesus Christ if we will abide in him and let his spirit abide in us. Remember, on the eighth day, God made a farmer, but also on the eighth day, God made a spouse. So think about that person in your life and perhaps rededicate yourself both to your Savior and to him or her. God looked down on the earth he created and said, I need a caretaker for this world I have made, and so God made a farmer. 
God said, I need someone ready to get up before dawn and milk the cows, till the fields, milk the cows again, and then go to, go to town and stay past midnight at the meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. I need someone with strong arms, strong enough to wrestle a calf, but gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. Somebody to call the hogs, tame the cantankerous machinery, come hungry and have to wait for lunch until his wife is done entertaining visiting ladies, and then tell the ladies, I hope you all come back real soon and mean it. And so, so God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody to sit up all night with a newborn cold and watch it die, then dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need someone to shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout and shoe a horse with a hunk of tire, make a harness out of haywire, feed sacks and shoe scraps, who at planting time and harvest will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon, then painting from tractor back, put in another 72. So God made a farmer. God had to have someone to ride the ruts at double speed to get in the hay ahead of the rain clouds and yet stop in midfield to race to help when he sees the first smoke from a neighbor's place. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales and yet gentle enough to tame lambs, wean pigs and tend the pink cone pullets, who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be someone who would plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed and weed and feed and breed, rake and disc and plow and plant, plow the snow and strain the milk and replenish the self-feeder and finish a hard day's work with a five-mile drive to church. Somebody who would bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says he wants to spend his life doing what his dad does. So God made a farmer. 